Since I'm the first one to speak, well, I'll do it. I'm not sure how it's going to come out. We'll see. So, stillness. I think in a way, often when we come to retreats, where we do meditation, I feel it's because within <coughs> us, there is this feeling, there is this intuition, there is this wisdom that we have the possibility to be still, that stillness is very beneficial to us. And so I think part of the attraction of meditation is that, thinking that we can gain some peace, we can gain some stillness, we can gain some equanimity. And so what I would like to look at is in a way the various aspects of stillness, of spaciousness. What does it mean? How can we look at it? And so that's what I want to It's not very kind of defined, <laughs> but it's more as a way for you to reflect, to inquire, to notice in your own experience. So this is just kind of, in a way, pointing various places we can look, various ways to look at stillness. And when I think of stillness myself, I think in a way that there is these two aspects which then become one of what I would call inner and outer stillness. And of course it's relatively evident on a retreat like here at Gaia House that generally what we're trying to do as a Gaia House retreat center is to create, to help an outer stillness in the same way that the discipline of the retreat, the schedule, again is there to help with creating this outer stillness. But what is interesting, if you look at the various Buddhist traditions, is that actually they have different ideas about how to create this stillness. And so in a way this uh, Gaia house is more in some ways although very open to all the tradition, more in the tradition of uh, Southeast Asia, Burma, Thailand, where actually the idea uh, to create more stillness is to encourage people to go more slowly. And for example, if you go to Burma, you can go and do retreats where you are supposed to, some retreat you're supposed to go at this space. You know, like you're going for the tea towers, you know, you come out of the toilet, going for the tea. I won't do it, it takes too long. But what is interesting here is that they're trying to work on physical, very material uh, stillness, where they encourage to do everything extremely slowly. So that actually it works at two levels, the level of the physical, of the material, that you're not rushing everywhere as we often do, so it's kind of counterbalancing that, but also at the level that if you go slowly, it's easier for you to be aware of what you're doing. Because one of the key of the meditation, Buddhist meditation practice is to develop more awareness. But then if you you see, let's say you spend a month in a Burmese temple and you go very slow and become very still, very aware, and then I take you to a Japanese temple, then you receive the shock of your life because there you're supposed to run. 
And you're supposed to run for meditation, to talks, to working, and you kind of... And, <laughs> and in a way, this is the same background, which is the Buddha. But again, I think it's according to people's idea, to people's culture, that they bring different conditions. And their idea is that you must learn to be still within being fast. And so there very much is a challenge. And I think it seems to me that, like, for example, in the Burmese tradition, they work more from the, I mean, not that they don't work on the inner, but they work more from the outer. And then from the Zen tradition, they're trying to work more from the inner, which I think one might be, according to your temperament and various conditions, one might seem more difficult than the other. And possibly, what we are looking at is that maybe what we want to go is for a middle way. That sometimes what we might, in order to go toward this out, inner and outer stillness, we might try to cultivate both. We might try to reflect on what in my daily life, in my life, in which way could I help my outer condition to be stiller that it will allow myself, my whole body-mind process, to be more still. And also in which way could I learn to be still within the busyness? Because I think in a way we have to look, stillness for me brings these two poles of inner and outer. And often I think the idea, of course, is, I think often is of equanimity, that no matter what happens, you remain equanimous, you remain still. But again, I think one has to be careful and not take this literally. You know, that somebody is beating a child next to you and you're equanimous, you know? <laughs> this is what's happening, you know, I am not moved. I think again, we have to be careful about what stillness means. I think stillness doesn't actually mean that you are unmoved, that you are literally still. I think again, it's kind of more a kind of creating, again, as Stephen was saying, that spaciousness, where there can be response, where there can be action. But the action and the response come from a spacious, still place, not from a busy, confused place. Then, of course, meditation in the meditative path, in the Buddhist path, there is great emphasis, of course, on inner, still, inner stillness. But I think often, as uh, Stephen po was pointing out, inner stillness seems to be associated with the idea of emptying the mind. This is an idea which often comes, you hear about to have emptying the mind, to have no thought, to have no mind, etc., etc. But Possibly, this image for us, emptying the mind, might not be so very useful. Because I think, you know, you think of yourself sitting in meditation, emptying the mind. Does it mean that you go into your mind and you get rid of this, get rid of that, get rid of this, get rid of that? And then you notice yourself, if you try to do that, get rid of this, get rid of that, then more and more calm. You know, then you kind of, and then you swamped. So obviously, this is not what it means. And I think, in a way, this inner stillness is more about not grasping. And to me, this is, in a way, the key to meditative practice, to having, in a way, an effect 
in our daily life is this not grasping, not identifying, not sticking in a way. And I think this is what kind of creates a lot of problem, a lot of sadness in our life, is that grasping, that holding. And a lot of the meditation is about dissipating that grasp we have, which creates a lot of tension. But at the same time, I think we have to be careful when we talk of inner stillness, that it is not independent of conditions. That, that, and that's why I, I think that's why we cannot think of emptying the mind literally. I think what we can only think is of dissolving the grasping at what we're coming to contact with. Because I think if we look at our experience, who we are in this moment now, we are constantly into contact. You are in contact with your thoughts, you are in contact with images you produce, you contact with feelings, with sensations, with sounds, with taste, with smell. There is constant interaction with what is the condition inside and outside. And, and I think that's why for this reason, I don't think we can empty anything. Because it's there. You cannot, you know, stop feeling, tasting, sound, etc. You cannot. They are there. So that's why the idea is more that there is contact. But you do not stick to the contact. You hear a sound. You totally hear it but you do not grasp at it. There is a thought, the thought is just there. There is a feeling, there is a sensation, there is a taste. So that's what I would really, in a way, encourage you to experiment during this retreat with contact, to be in contact, to really know contact. Because I think generally, we have contact and very quickly, we go into what Stephen called content and reaction. We, we hear a sound, I like this, I want this sound to continue, I don't want it, or I have this thought, oh, this is a terrible thought, this was a terrible thing, and off we go. We generally, very quickly, get totally overwhelmed into what we come in contact with, inside or outside. And I think what this stillness is about is, can we come into contact and just be still? with whatever we come into contact with. Because I think if we can start to do this on the retreat, then we go back to our daily life. Maybe we can bring more spaciousness around what we come in contact with. We are not trying to stop contact, nor content. We are trying not to, in a way, have this sticky effect, this kind of grasping effect, this kind of solidifying effect. And there is this, um, this uh, sentence in, uh, said, pronounced by uh, the sixth Zen patriarch, Winning, which I thought we could look at now. And he says, thoughtlessness, having no thought, is to see and to know things with a mind free from attachment. So, I repeat it. Thoughtlessness, Having no thought is to see 
and to know things with a mind free from attachment. So here it's very clear that having no thought is not to have a blank mind at all, but to, is to see and to know things. So within the thoughtlessness, within the having no mind, within the emptying of the mind, you see and you know things. So there is an experience of things, but it's with a mind free from attachment. So very much what we trying to do is to, in a way, dissolve attachment, dissolve grasping. And what I think is very important to see is that there are that one of the aim of meditation is to dissolve attachment, is to dissolve grasping. And one of the qualities which helps us to do this is concentration. So you might wonder as you sit in meditation and we tell us, we tell you concentrate on the breath, and you think, well, you know, of course the breath is important and what not, but you know, what's the point? And actually the point of the concentration is to help you free yourself from attachment. This is very much the point. This is very much where you do it. But at the same time, you have to realize, because all of you have come from different traditions in a way, is that there are many different methods to develop concentration and to learn to be free from attachment. I think this is very important to see that they are not just one method, they are very different methods. Because in a way, we have many different attachments. And so I think all these methods can be very helpful. So you know, you have many m different methods of concentration. And during the week, we might introduce a few of these methods. For example, in the Tibetan tradition, there are very different methods I find very interesting of uh, helping you to be concentrated. You have some very complicated methods, like um, visually visualizing a mandala, a picture in three dimensions. And it's amazingly difficult, and not many people can do this, because you have this very elaborate picture, and you build this in your mind and in three dimensions. And the aim of it is not actually to, to make up this incredible, beautiful picture, <laughs> but the aim actually is for mind to be concentrated on doing that. And by being concentrated on doing that, actually you don't think of anything else. You generally are not distracted because it requires so much concentration. And so again, it's kind of dissolving the ability, the tendency of the mind to be distracted, to be occupied with a lot of different things. It's trying to, it's concentrating, but using a very complicated object of concentration. Another method in the Tibetan tradition of concentration is analytical meditation, where you concentrate, you actually use thought in order to become concentrated. You use a theme like death, and you have various questions that in a way you answer, you reflect on. There is a, a, a series of three questions. The first one is to reflect on the fact that death is certain, then you reflect on the fact that death is uncertain, the time of death is uncertain, and then you reflect on the fact since death is certain, but the time is uncertain, what is important for me to do now? And again, the idea is that the object of concentration is reflection on death at an experiential level. 
and that in a way helps you to free yourself from attachment it, it's very it w- in, in, in making you realize how precious life is and also, also I think it helps you to see how we can become so attached to very minor things you might notice this on a retreat on a retreat is excellent opportunity to be upset by very minor things you know who touched my cousin oh they took my favorite cup you know or whatever but you see, if you can at that moment reflect, you know, what if I was to die in the next minute? Would that cup be so important? And would the position of the cushion be so important? Because we kind of little, helps a little there. I mean, in the Zen tradition, uh, we, I think we'll introduce this method later on. It's very different. The way of concentration is just to ask a question. And that's all you do. It's totally uncomplicated. And you just ask this question, what is this? What is this? What is this? And that's all you do, day in, day out. And again, the concentration there is to come back to the question itself and to really ask this question in this moment. And it's very interesting because there too, it has an effect on freeing ourselves from attachment. And in the Theravada tradition, the concentration is actually on the experience itself. So that's why it's called awareness practice. So you concentrate on the breath, on the sound, on sensation, on thought, or whatever. Something within your experience. And actually by being concentrated on the experience, you actually experience the experience differently. That's again, and you become actually more detached from it, by being more into it. I mean, this is again interesting, that's what Stephen was talking about, (coughs) that often we are so mechanical, that actually we are not experiencing what we're going through. So in a way, there are all these, and there are many, many more methods to cultivate concentration. But the main idea of concentration is to cultivate stillness and to help us free ourselves from attachment. So what we're trying to do actually in meditation now and what in a way we're trying to continue to do when we go back home and are in our ordinary life is to be with things as they are. Like I mean an example is when you sit in meditation, you sit there. So in a way bodily you still. So you could say, Oh yes, I have achieved a certain stillness, I can sit still. But then within that as I said before, there is all this contact. Hearing, there is sound, feeling, sensation, thought, images. And the idea is that not that you stop this, but the idea is that you just stay still with them. You just let them come and go. They arise and they go. They arise and they go. And they can go because you do not attach yourself to them. And that's why it's interesting to see over time. At the beginning, it's a little difficult. You know, things come and you really get totally, kind of in a way, entangled with it. And then 10 minutes pass and then suddenly you come back. Oh, yes. You know, this is, you come back to yourself. And I think at that level, I think one has to be careful of associated silence 
with noiselessness. Silence is not an absence of noise. Again, silence in meditation is absence of attachment and restlessness. So silence is more associated in a way with stillness. And I think that's why we have to be careful of not saying I can only meditate if it's totally silent, meaning totally noiseless. Because in a way it's not possible to have no noise. I mean, the radiator, when they work, have little noise, the crows, the birds, our body, the gurgle, whatever. At any moment there is a possibility for sound. And so, I think we have to be careful of that. That again, stillness doesn't mean that nothing is happening. Silence doesn't mean there are not noises, sound. And at that level, personally, I think, I mean, I'm not saying we should all kind of practice in the middle of New York, very noisy place. Like, I know a retreat center, that's what they do. They, they do meditation in a warehouse in the middle of Queens. Very noisy. You know, and they sit, you know, for have a day like this. I would not, I mean, it's a good idea, but it might be a little tricky. (laughs) But I think we have also to, what I find wonderful when we sit here, for example, that suddenly there is a sound. You might have a dog barking, you might have a car passing by, there might be an helicopter going over. And actually, that sound will bring you back. And I think that's one very good thing about sounds that generally they bring you back because they generally, I mean, they come and they go. And they kind of shake you. Because if we have thought, it's very hard to know, to really be aware and come back from thought or sensation or feeling. We can get easily lost in there. But here, in a way, the sound, in a way, bring us back to ourselves. And in that moment, I think, it's kind of trying to be in this awareness which I would call a still awareness where you do not grasp at anything, but you do not reject anything either. Because rejecting is as much grasping as grasping. Because when you say, I don't want this, you're actually sticking to that thing. You're pushing it away, and then it comes back even more. So that's what stillness is, is not rejecting, but not grasping either. But it doesn't mean that you do not feel. And I think we have to be careful again to think that equanimity, stillness, silence, spaciousness mean that there is nobody there to feel anything. There are feelings. But again, we are with these feelings. We are very present to them. And then we are able to let them go. And I can remember when I was a, a nun in Korea, Master Kuzan used to, two occasions when he would cry. One was when he used to give a, a speech, special speech for funerals. You know, he would speak and he would say, yes, there is no body, there is no, you know, there is no form, there is no body, there is no this. And then he would kind of cry because this poor guy had died. <laughs> and I loved it because, you know, he could... You know, you could see that at one level everything was empty and everything was changed. But at another level it was sad that this poor guy died, so he was sad too. And so he was able to cry, but then he would not cry for ten days. He would cry a few minutes and then he would go back to his speech. 
another place where you would regularly cry, and I would kind of get a little kind of, you know, a Zen master is not supposed to cry, really. And it was because sometimes when he gave talks to Korean lay people, he would talk of gratitude. Gratitude is seen as very important in the Korean Buddhist tradition. And so he would give this beautiful speech about gratitude, and then he would have the fifth gratitude. And whenever he came to the fifth gratitude, he would just broke up. He would just really cry. And that gratitude, finally one day I said, Master, why do you cry there? <laughs> and because that, that gratitude was the gratitude the children have toward the parents when they left, leave, they left the children leave home. And he would cry there because he said, every time I talk about this, I remember my mother, sadness when I left home, and my gratitude for her to let me go. And he would cry. And I thought it was beautiful. So I mean, it, it, it doesn't mean the fact that you are still, your silent spaces, doesn't mean that you do not have feelings. But it means that you are not actually disturbed, that your feelings do not turn into disturbing emotions. Another thing I saw Master Kuzan do was uh, go around the temple with a big stick, looking very fierce. And it was, and at those times he was looking for his attendant, because he had an attendant who was rather hopeless. <laughs> you know, because regularly that's what happened with uh, the master of a temple, they are given attendant to form them. So regularly every three months he gets a new attendant, so every three months he has to form a new one. And some of them are more hopeless than others. That one was really hopeless. Because, you know, a lot of that time he had that one, he would go around with his stick looking for him. Where is his attendant? But, I mean, he just passed again. You know, he would kind of be quite uh, fierce with that attendant. And then he could also be very kind. He did not stick to him. He did not stick in a way to his emotion. He did not stick to what the person did. He did not stick to what an happened. But he had a point to make, so since he was training that young guy. So I think it's very important to see that how can we become still? The way to become still, what, in a way, what are the obstacles to us being still and spacious? And I would say the obstacles are our, a lot of our obstacles are habits. We have a lot of emotional, mental, and physical habits. And I think this is, these things really, I have the feeling that they totally crowd. It's kind of like we have all these, often these habits are compared to grooves. But there is all these grooves. I would say there is all these grooves in our body-mind process of habits. Emotional habits, mental habits, physical habits. And so whenever we come into contact, we go back to this group, we go back to these habits. We react this way, we react that way. I like this, I don't like this, I want this, I don't want that, whatever it is. And I think that's why, in a way, the meditation is about, is about us first recognizing in the stillness of the form, of the meditation, of the concentration, to notice the habits, and at the same time, because we see them and we don't cultivate them more, 
because we come back to the object, then they start to dissipate. And because of that, then we can be stiller. So I think what is interesting here actually is that the awareness and the concentration helps us to be more still. But being still helps us to be more aware and concentrated. And so that, in a way, that's where the meditative process is something that is not just done overnight, but it's something that builds itself up. It's something that we have already, and then as we build it up, then it builds itself up by itself. And I think that's why I was mentioning intention uh, yesterday evening, and that's what I've started to realize, that when I was younger, I used to make this vow, I am going to do this, I am going to do that, and I would never do it. It would never work. I would say to myself, I must not be jealous, I must not be angry, I must not do this, I must do this, I must do exercise, I've not managed this one yet, you know. And it would not work. It would not work. And recently, something happened, and it made me realize that intention actually works really well when your mind is more aware and still and spacious. And because recently I made, um, we made, Stephen myself made a vow. <laughs> we made a vow in Rome. Very good place to make a vow. And we don't know how long it's going to last, but <laughs> should I tell you what it is? Ah, why not? This Buddhist meditation teacher. We made a vow that we would not be angry or irritated at each other, and that we were going to observe this. And I think this was more for me than for him, but we vowed together. <laughs> and what was interesting is that when we said it, I thought it was a joke. We were kind of, you know, walking in Rome and whatever, whatever, running after a bus. And I thought, this is a joke. And then over the time, he, he thought, it sounded serious. So I thought, okay, let's do this. And generally, I never do this. Because I think intention, vows, is really crazy. Because it doesn't work. I, you know, New Year resolution, I never work, not even a minute. But what was interesting is that we made this decision. And since then, two or three times, I have felt I had reason to be irritated. <laughs> and because of the intention, I thought, uh-uh. And, I thought, and, I, and it has worked. It has worked. But not because I'm repressing it and, and, and anything like this, but because there is a space to see why. Why do you want to do this? What is the point of this? What are you doing? What is going on here? And I think in a way this is a gift of stillness, of awareness, of spaciousness. Is that because you, I think the, uh, the only explanation I can give at the moment is that generally if we have a lot, we have all our mental, emotional, physical habits. And I think they're kind of like crowding our mind. Our mind is full with like all these furniture. And there is very little space to move. And very little space to see things clearly. But I think when your mind is more aware, more still, more spacious, the furniture has gone. 
and there is this empty space and when something comes in it and if you have that intention to look at it to see what goes on what is this how is it this is what it is I think this is the first thing to see that this is what it is then the whole thing is not one-dimensional it's multi-dimensional and I think in a way this is the beauty of the stillness of the awareness is that you see things in all its facets and while you're irritated what's the point of being irritated is it going to make the thing better because generally we think you know this is my right you know this is unfair you did not do it <laughs> you should have done it don't we do this? I mean, look at yourself during this week. I mean, you should make the vow. We could all make the vow now, couldn't we? And, and look, I mean, I find it very interesting how intention, I think, now works because there is stillness, because there is spaciousness. And that's why I see, in a way, intention is, is a spark. But the sparks can work because there is a space for the sparks to work. Another thing I, would, I wanted to mention was this uh, statement by uh, a Chinese Zen master of the 12th century, 12th century, which I found very interesting in terms of stillness and emptying the mind. So if I may read it and then look at it a little together. So that's what the statement is. In the daily activities of a student of the path, to empty objects is easy, but to empty the mind is hard. If objects are empty, but the mind is not empty, mind will be overcome by objects. Just empty your mind, an object will empty of themselves. And I think in a way this is the point about inner stillness and this spaciousness, this silence, this awareness we're trying to develop, to uncover, to cultivate, is the fact that of course we can empty objects. We can, and I think a lot often a lot of what is called renunciation seems to be about that. You know, you have an object, you stop desiring that object, if there is no... I mean, one thing, you see, you have an object, and then you can say, this object is bad, this object is empty, I don't want this object... Oh, sorry, I, I think I have to go back on that one to explain it better. Yeah, I think often the mistake is to think that if we renounce things, then we'll be okay. So that we get rid of things. We get rid of things and then we'll be okay. But I think what he is saying here is that you can empty objects, and that's relatively easy to empty objects, to renounce objects, to say, I don't care about this, I don't care about that. But actually, if at the same time you don't empty the mind of the grasping itself, then as soon as you come in contact with objects, you'll be again taken over by them. But you say, if the mind itself is empty, if the mind itself is still, then the object themselves 
will be empty. Not because they will disappear in a puff of smoke, but because you will not imbue the object with all kinds of desirable or undesirable conditions or characteristics. And I think that's why I think this point I think is, is a bit tricky, I agree, but I think it's interesting in terms of what do we think meditation is about? What are we trying to achieve? What, what, what is uh, stillness about? What does it represent for us? Do we think that we come here and we sit here and peace should just descend on us just like that? Or do we realize that peace comes only if we are able to free our, ourselves from attachment and habits. It doesn't mean that we do not function, but it means that things are in their right balance. Because I think in a way one of the influence, affect of grasping is that it makes you magnify. And I think this is very in, in, in important at the level of contact and what happens. Contact and habit. Is that as soon as you come into contact, I say you grasp. You, we often stick to whatever it is. Sensation, feeling, sounds, etc., etc., images. And then by, we, we grasp because in that moment we identify. We say, this is me. I am like this. I have this thought, I have this feeling, I have this sensation. And at that moment, we solidify yourself and the thing itself. And then at that moment, we magnify it because we limit ourselves to it. Notice as you are during the week, how suddenly you have this strong sensation and you go to it. And this, in a way, is your whole universe. The fact that you have a certain pain in the knee, certain pain in the shoulder. And actually, you reduce yourself to that. This is me. And by doing that, then you magnify it. Because that's all there is to you in that moment. Or notice if there is a problem in your life and suddenly you sit <coughs> and you think about it. And notice how, by thinking about it, by identifying with it, this is my problem, this problem is going to be there forever. You reduce yourself to that. In that moment, you don't see that the problem is just part of your life, but your life is much bigger than that. And so in a way, I think the stillness, what the stillness and the spaciousness does, is reduce all this. By freeing the grasping, by the grasping dissolving, then the thing still happens. You still have a problem, you still have a sensation, you still have a thought, an image. But you don't go through the identifying, solidifying, magnifying. The experience is as it is. So you are sad, you are happy, you are still, you are peaceful, or whatever. You are with it as it is. And because you do not amalgamate all these things around it, it's there and then it goes. And it might come back later upon all the conditions. 
my time is running out. So I think I'll stop here. And so I would encourage you during the, the week to really notice, you know, what does this stillness mean for me? What does the inner silence, inner and outer silence, what does the spaciousness? And also to notice when you feel really still, when you feel really spacious, notice that it is often because there is no grasping. But the fact that there is no grasping doesn't mean that there is no experience. There is an experience, but it's, it's kind of much more wide. The only thing where I think we can describe it is by saying it's spacious. In that moment, you feel spacious. And because of that, there will be actually more ability to have compassion. And that's what will come later in the week. We'll talk about the connection to stillness, then questioning, then compassion. Because it seems to me that, again, if we go back to all this being crowded, the body-mind complex being crowded, the mind being crowded, then because of that, there is little compassion. Or the compassion there is, is often very qualified, very conditional. But when these, the crowding disappear, when the furniture becomes much more simple, then there is much more space. And I think then it's much easier to recognize the other, to feel for the other. We'll talk more about this in the future. Thank you. Are there any questions? Oh. If not, now there is a, a walking period for 30 minutes. And again, I think this is an interesting thing to do, is to try to walk. And notice how, if you walk med meditatively, actually you walk in stillness. But actually walking can be very still, but still there is movement. And so exploring that, stillness in movement, that uh, med uh, walking meditation gives you the opportunity to cultivate and practice. And we'll meet again here at 8 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.